And over the last several months, we've looked in the book of Revelation, and recently we've seen the first and second woes, outpourings of terrible judgment in the sounding of the fifth and the sixth trumpet. And today we look at the third and final woe and the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And so let's read together Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 15. Revelation 11, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded the trumpet. And there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders, which are before God, seated upon their thrones, fell upon their faces and worshipped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were enraged, and your wrath has come. And the time to judge the dead And to give reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, to those who fear your name, both small and great. And to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, opened. And the ark of of his covenant appeared in his temple and there were flashes of lightning sounds and thunders an earthquake and great hail this passage begins with a declaration that all of creation longs for Every aspect of creation is longing for the day of redemption. The day when Jesus Christ reigns once and for all. This declaration that we are hearing at the sound of the seventh trumpet is the declaration that we all need. All of creation needs this moment and everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ needs this declaration when all things that are wrong, are made right. This is the declaration that we all are waiting for. At the sound of this declaration, the 24 elders reappear. They fall on their faces before the Lord and they worship. They are giving thanks to the Lord and they say, the first thing out of their mouths, we give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, who is And who was. This title given to the Lord Almighty is used frequently through Revelation. And it's a title in every instance conveying the control 
of God over all things so that all things move towards the moment where the reign of Jesus Christ is established forever. God is not competing for supremacy or control. He is in control of all things because He is the Almighty. This passage describes God as the God who is and who was. If you'll notice, this is similar to the description we've already seen three times in Revelation. Where God is described as the God who is, the God who was, and the God who is to come. Three times we've seen that phrase, now for the first time, and the remainder of Revelation, we will only see the God who is and the God who was. Because the God who is to come just arrived. And the God who is to come is all we'll know from this point forward. Because the reign of Jesus Christ is established and the God who is to come has once and for all come. And from now on, The God who is to come is the God who is. And so we will only know him as the God who is and the God who was. Because everything we've longed for in Jesus Christ now is. I love that they're worshiping God because of who he is. The Almighty, the one who is and who was. And then they say, after they say who he is in their declaration of worship, they say what he has done. And they worship him because he has taken his power, all of who he is, and he has leveraged it so that his reign is established forever. And they worship him because of who he is. And what he's done. And in their declaration of worship, we see that the nations are enraged against God. Again, this picture of absolute rebellion against God. And in total rebellion, the time has now come for God to judge the world. And so we see the description of God's judgment where he judges the dead. The time has come now for those who have destroyed the earth to be destroyed. The Those who destroyed the earth is just a foreshadowing of what's going to come in the next several chapters of Revelation where the red dragon and the beast, the great city Babylon, are destroyed because it has been credited to them the destruction of the earth. So God is promising here that it's coming a day when judgment will fall. And along with that judgment, He will distribute rewards to those who fear his name, to his servants, the prophets, and to the saints. We are being told that Jesus Christ is coming to establish his reign forever. And this is the vision of that moment. And in conjunction with judgment, Jesus Christ also brings reward. If you'll recall in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, in the initial seven letters to the churches... Every one of those letters describes rewards from Jesus for his church. If they will trust him, if they will hold on through every challenge and every difficult, there are rewards coming. Throughout the New Testament, we hear the concept of rewards for those who trust faithfully in Jesus Christ, following him, believing him, no matter what. 
clinging to him. For those who've trusted in him, he is bringing reward. And the great thing about the rewards of Jesus is that any reward he gives us is more than sufficient to provide us joy forever. Jesus in his goodness does not just give us any old reward. And I am so grateful that he's not give us rewards strictly on the basis of what we deserve because of what we have done. Now it's interesting that the end of Revelation, Jesus says, behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to each one according to what he has done. But as you read through Revelation, you quickly recognize that the reward that Jesus Christ brings, that he is going to give on the basis of what we have done, is not on the basis of what we have done ourselves, but on the basis of what we have done with Jesus Christ. Because if we've trusted in Jesus Christ, then his reward to us is on the basis of what he has done on our behalf. And so he's bringing reward with him the greatest of which is completely based upon everything Christ has done on our behalf and absolutely not based on what we have done for ourselves. You know the greatest reward that Christ is bringing? Himself. He's bringing himself. And he's going to give himself to us in a perfect relationship forever. And the gift of himself is based on his love and his work alone. He is bringing his reward. And this promise that we see unfolding in the seventh trumpet vision is a promise of unparalleled proportions. This is the greatest promise, future promise we could ever see. There's nothing better than this future promise. Once this promise is articulated in this moment of worship, in this heavenly vision, we see the temple of God open, the final piece of the vision, and the Ark of the Covenant appearing in heaven. And then this massive heavenly storm, the third time we've seen a storm like this rumbles through the heavens, shaking the the ground upon which John stands. And he is reminded of the significance of this vision by the heavenly storm acting as an exclamation point on this moment of God's purpose. This is a heavenly vision of a future promise that when understood and laid claim to should shape everything about our present reality. The future promise of Christ's reign and reward should so affect our lives that it literally affects everything we think, every attitude, every belief, Every action, every reaction, every choice, it should affect every single thing in our lives. Jesus is coming and he will establish his reign forever and he will reward 
those who lay claim to his promise and everything that's wrong will be made right. There is no greater future promise. In 1988, there's a football team, a high school football team in Dallas by the name of Dallas Carter. And in 1988, they had a, an opportunity as one of the great teams in that year to go to the state championships. And they were, as they were making their way through the playoffs, they encountered various challenges along the way that jeopardized their opportunity to have a, op, to have a chance to go to the state playoffs. There were some problems around the no pass, no play rules. And those problems arose and began to affect the team. It went to court and all the proceedings in court, the appeals, the injunctions, the pauses, all that stuff was affecting the team so much so that there were times they didn't know if they were going to play that same day they had a game. They would suit up, they'd be in the bus, they didn't know if they'd leave. They'd been told, no, you can't play. They have to get off the bus and they were told, no, you can play. It was crazy for the players, the challenges that they went through, the emotional ups and downs as they encountered one difficulty after another. Well, they made it through all those challenges. They played in every game and they won the state championship. It was the first state championship that Dallas Carter had ever won. The first state, cha- or the, the, the state championship since 1950 in Dallas. Nobody won in Dallas since 1950. It was an amazing experience for the community to go through all that difficulty, all those challenges, all the public hype around those issues. Well, everybody knew the players because everything was on the news as they walked through this thing. It was a very well-known event in our state. And because of the notoriety and the fact that this was the first state championship in Dallas since 1950, the first ever at Dallas Carter, there was a great deal of accolades lavished on these players. This was one special team. These players would go into the community. They were treated like celebrities after winning the state championship. And this team was made up of unbelievable um, caliber of individuals. There were about 16 players on the team who were awarded Division I scholarships in football. For those of you who are not familiar with the significance of that, you have to be really, really good to get a Division I scholarship. And there were 16 individuals. There were about a half a dozen players on the team that were projected to be in the NFL. They were all Americans in high school. They were unbelievable. Some of the greatest players in the nation were on this team. They were promised so much in their future. Full rides to college. And yet not days after winning the state championship, experiencing the accolades of being celebrities and having such great future hope, a group of those players decided they wanted more now. And they proceeded to carry out armed robberies in their community to the tune of over 20 armed robberies credited to these individual players. They were able to get over $10,000 through the robberies, and I'm sure they must have enjoyed having all of that money. But is $10,000 really even comparable to your entire college paid for and the prospects of your future waiting for you. 
This is unbelievable. When the judge, there were five of them and they were arrested from the team. And when the judge was sentencing the players, he said to them, cumulatively, you guys have conducted more robberies in this short period of time than Bonnie and Clyde did their whole lives. It was unbelievable. In the sentencing, the players were given anywhere between 13 and 25 years in jail. One of the All-Americans who would certainly have had every opportunity to make the NFL, he got 20 years in prison. When you think about that story, what makes that story so sad is that they should have so embraced the future promises that it deeply affected their present reality. And they didn't. And nothing good happened. This vision in Revelation is the declaration of a future promise of Jesus' reign and reward that should deeply affect our present reality. But this future promise is unique. Nothing like it exists. This promise is unique. When you lay claim to this promise, not only do you have the future promise of Christ's reign reward to wait upon, no, the moment you lay claim to this promise, it has present effect in your life that changes everything about your experience as you await the promise to be fulfilled. Think about it like this. The, the original recipients of the book of Revelation would have been encountering massive difficulties in their life. They would have had incredible challenges of persecution and difficulty following Christ in their world. So when they get this, they all identify with the fact that we have had trouble, difficulty, and challenges following Christ. They get that. You know what? We're just like them. Though we may not be in the same experience of persecution like they were, everybody is familiar with difficulties and challenges as we seek to follow Christ. Some of those difficulties we manufacture ourselves, don't we? We create them. And we really regret when we do it. Some of the difficulties and challenges somebody else causes in our life because of what they choose to do. And some of the difficulties and challenges of seeking to follow Christ, this side of heaven, just happen like a natural disaster. Because of the future promise of Christ's reign and reward, we can see Every difficulty and challenge, for whatever reason it has come into our lives, far differently than we would ever see it if we did not have the future promise of Christ's reign and reward. Do you realize that no matter what difficulty we encounter, there is not a single difficulty in this life, no matter how it came into our lives, not a single difficulty in this life that removes the promise of Jesus' future reign and reward so that we have hope always, no matter what we face. There is never a moment of challenge or difficulty in your life 
that you cannot experience the hope of Christ because of his future promise of his reign and his reward. We always have hope. We know that no matter how difficult any moment becomes, there's coming a day when all that difficulty will be changed and everything that was wrong will be made right again forever. We know that no matter what we lose, this side of heaven, there's coming a day when our gain will far outweigh anything we've lost and every tear will be wiped away and all we will know is joy forever. There is hope always, no matter what we face. For those who lay claim to the promise, the future promise of Christ's reign and reward. But it's more than that. So much more. Because in the midst of every difficulty that we face now, we don't lose hope for what's coming. But now as we go through it, God in his goodness, his control of all things, enables us as we walk through the difficulty to catch glimpses of hope that's coming by hope realized in the moment. I got to sit with Lindley's parents last night and hear them talk about the devastation that they're in the middle of. You know what they told me? This is so cool. With tears at times and smiles at other times, they said, we are seeing God work in an unbelievable way. They talked more about the hand of God working through the people of God than they talked about the devastation of their home. How does that happen? Because the future promise of Christ's reign and reward means we never lose hope. And in the midst of the difficulties we walk through this side of heaven, God somehow takes bad things and brings good out of them so that we have momentary tastes of the hope that is coming. Christ's reign and rule is a promise that is intended to deeply affect who we are right now. Think about it in terms of temptation to sin. Everyone in this room has been tempted to sin this last week. And all of us know what it's like to give in to temptation to sin. We know the devastation of that. We know the shame of that. We know the regret of that. And we will constantly face the temptation to sin against God. We have the future promise of Christ's reign and reward that should dramatically affect our present reality. Our present reality is that we are tempted to sin. You know what the future promise of Christ's reign and reward means? It means that we can see temptation for what it is because we know that Christ has promised us that his reign and his reward will fill our hearts and lives with eternal life and satisfaction like nothing else can. And so when the temptation to sin comes, we can see it for the lie that it is. Do you know every temptation that comes into our lives is promising something that we feel like in the moment we'd like to have? Whatever temptation is common to you, there is a promise in that temptation that makes it a temptation. If we were not tempted, 
because we saw that what it promised, it could not deliver, then we'd not call it temptation. But the fact is, we call it temptation because it comes in ways that offers deception so that we begin to believe what the temptation offers us and could find some level of satisfaction in it. But what the embracing, laying hold of the future promise does, it says, we know that whatever temptation is promising us, that when it delivers what it delivers, its satisfaction at best will be a moment, and it will leave me completely bankrupt and empty. And because of the future promise of Christ's reign and reward, I know my satisfaction is found when Jesus Christ reigns. And in the moment of this lie, I will say no to this temptation, and I will stop pursuing my own ends because Christ's ends are better. And we say no. And when we stumble and say yes, and we are brought to the emptiness of sin, it is the future promise of Christ's reign and reward that rescues our fleeing heart. You see, Christ's future reign and reward means that sin has no authority over those who lay claim to the future promise. So though I have succumbed to temptation and stepped into sin temporarily, sin does not own me. Because I have laid claim to the future promise of Christ's reward, He owns me and I'm not slave to that sin. And I can turn from that sin and I can turn to Christ and I can strive to know Him. Because of His future promise of His reign and reward, I know that right now there is no barrier between me and God because of my past sin. He has eradicated my sin and forgiven me and given me the righteousness of Christ so that now I have nothing between me and God and I can pursue Him as if I had never sinned. I can know Him right now. Getting a taste. I'm getting a taste. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm getting a taste of what's coming right now. The reality of the future promise of Christ's reign and reward is to so saturate our lives in its uniqueness, having laid claim to that future promise that everything about our present reality is shaped and formed by that. The, the key is to lay claim to the future promise. You don't experience the uniqueness of the promise that's held in the future unless you lay claim to the promise right now. And the final vision, the final scene in this vision where the temple of God opens in heaven and the Ark of the Covenant appears is the significant key to laying hold of the future promise. I want to remind you of a few things about the Ark of the Covenant you can learn from the Old Testament. There are three things inside the Ark of the Covenant. The first thing inside the Ark of the Covenant is the law, the, the stone tablets that God wrote the Ten Commandments on. They're placed inside the Ark of the Covenant reminding God's people that the only way to be God's people is to uphold His standard of holiness. Also inside the Ark of the Covenant is a staff, a rod that belonged to Aaron. 
So a piece of that rod is put in the Ark of the Covenant. Now the story behind that is there was a time in Israel's life, not long after Aaron was designated by God to be the priest, the mediator between the people and God. There was a group of people, prominent people, people of renown among Israel, about 250 of them that rose up against Aaron and said, hey, we, we want to follow God. How can you be any more special than we are? We don't think that you're a very good priest, a very good leader. We would like to make a change. And so these people of renown stood up against God's choice and said, we don't like God's choice. Moses said, well, let's let God speak to the matter. And God spoke to the matter in a dramatic fashion, made it very clear that he had made a choice of who would lead his people. And nothing could stand in the way of his choice. After that happened, Moses said to the tribes, I want each of you to get a staff, a rod. Carve into that staff the name of your tribe. We're going to take those 12 rods with each name of the tribe written on them. We're going to place those before the Lord. And overnight, we're going to see what the Lord does. And if one of those staffs come out having sprouted, a dead rod growing, Whichever rod sprouts, that will dictate who it is God has chosen. So once and for all, you will know God's choice. The next day when Moses went into God's presence and he looked at the 12 staffs, the 12 rods there, Aaron's rod had not only sprouted, not only grown branches and leaves and blooms and blossoms, it also had ripe almonds on it. I mean, that's an emphatic statement right there. Moses brings that out and says, I think God has made it clear. Aaron is our man. That was put inside the ark. Also inside the ark was a golden jar full of manna. You know, manna was that substance that God provided his people after he delivered them from their slavery in Egypt so that they would have something to live on during their journey from Egypt to their promised land. That's inside the ark. And then one of the most interesting features of the ark is the cherubim on the lid of the ark. These angels whose wings come up over the lid, covering the lid, and right underneath the angels' wings on the lid of the ark is called the mercy seat. That ark was in the tent of meeting. In between those cherubim, right there above the mercy seat, Moses spoke with God as a friend. It was right there on that mercy seat that once a year, Moses and Aaron would sacrifice an animal and take the blood of that animal and sprinkle it on the mercy seat so that the people's sins over the last year would be overlooked by God. It's called the Day of Atonement. Once a year, Sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat where Moses met with God as a friend. And here in this vision, we see heaven's temple opened and the Ark of the Covenant appears. But praise be to God, this was not Moses' Ark. Do you know what Hebrews 9 tells us? Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 tells us that the ark that was fashioned on the earth by Moses was a copy 
of the real ark, which is in heaven. And what John sees is not the copy. He sees the real ark. And it's not the ark of the old covenant. It's the ark of the new covenant. Where the old ark had tablets of stone upon which were written the law of God. The new ark has Jesus Christ who has sufficiently kept every law and perfectly upheld every requirement of God on our behalf. Where the old ark Where the old ark had the manna in a jar. The new ark has Jesus Christ who has laid down his life. As provision to set us free from our slavery to sin. Who in rising from the dead sent his spirit to live with us. So that every step along the way this side of our promised land. He would supply spiritual life knowing that his promise is good. The Where the old ark had Aaron's staff, the new ark has Jesus Christ, the one and only perfect high priest, who because he upheld every standard of God's requirements, was able to offer himself once and for all for our sin, so that we are not forgiven or our sins are not overlooked for a time. No, on the mercy seat of the real ark is sprinkled the blood of Jesus Christ, cleansing us from our sin forever, so that when we lay hold of the promise, we are invited into friendship with God, and He transfers us from the place of being enemies with God to being His friends, so that now we know Him. The key, yeah, Unbelievable. The key to laying hold of the promise is simply faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Faith in Jesus. This this passage describes faith in Jesus with the words, those who fear your name. You know what that's like? You, You ever seen a little boy walking with his dad and something scares that little boy whatever it is something scares the little boy and the little boy's immediate reaction you know what it is to run behind his dad's leg and cling there and just peer around the edge of the leg to make sure whatever he's afraid of is no longer coming after him you've seen that happen the little boy runs behind his daddy's leg Because he knows that whatever he's afraid of will be more afraid of his dad. That's what it means to fear the Lord. Whatever it is I'm afraid of, I know is more afraid of my God. And so I'm just going to keep running to him. When I face temptation, I'm going to run to him. When I'm in difficulty, I'm going to run to him. Because whatever is making me afraid is more afraid of him. And I'm going to cling to him. That's what it means to live your life on the basis of God's future promise of Jesus' reign and reward. You know that Dallas Carter team was stripped of their state title. It's the saddest story. This devastated that community. One of the players who went on to win two state, uh, national titles in 
collegiate football, five-time pro bowler in the NFL, and two-time Super Bowl champion. He played on that team, and he remembers back when all this was going on, he got a phone call from two of his buddies, closest friends, inviting him to come and join the fun of burglarizing restaurants and convenience stores. And he told them no, because he embraced a future promise and was radically affecting his present reality. His life today is dramatically different than those guys who didn't make that choice. You know, his greatest regret, after getting that phone call and realizing what was going on, he went straight to his coach and had every intention of telling his coach what his fellow players were doing. And when he started talking to his coach, he made a decision to change the subject, and he didn't tell him. And he's wondered since that day if I'd have told him how different things might have been for my friend. The significance of Christ's future promise should deeply affect our present reality. And when it does, tell people about it. Our world needs us most when our present reality is most affected by the future promise of Christ's reign and reward. So let's make the most of our opportunity.